0: Welcome to Community Union's Education Podcast with Martin and Rob.
1: In this episode, we update you on what's going on with teacher pay, and we bring you the latest information about GCSE and A level exam arrangements. We update you on the situation with school buildings in your working life, and we bust those bank holiday myths.
0: So welcome along, everybody, to February 2023's edition of Community Unions Education Podcast. Uh, As you heard from Martin at the start, what do you have to share with everybody on teacher
1: pay? People will, I'm sure, be aware that there's an awful lot going on in the news at the moment. We mentioned last month that there was some strike action which was likely to take place. Well, that has gone ahead and there is more strike action from the NEU coming up over the next month. I think it's important to point out that throughout the last month, we have continued to meet with government. We've continued to push the issue of teacher pay to try to secure the best deal possible for our members. We were due to publish our evidence to the school teachers review body at the end of January. But at the 11th hour, the DfE contacted us and all of the other unions to say that they would not be able to publish their evidence on time and that there was going to be a delay. Just prior to us recording this episode of the podcast, the DfE have now published their evidence to the independent teacher review body. We're asking for a pay rise that matches inflation, but in their evidence, the DfE are recommending just 3%. And with inflation currently running at around 10%, this means that your salary will be worth 7% less than last year, even after the uplift due to the effects of inflation. So is it worth, Rob, having a quick reminder about how inflation works?
0: I think that depends how quick you can make it, Martin. Go and have a go.
1: Inflation increases the costs of the things we buy and the services we use, while simultaneously decreasing the value of your income. For example, 10% 10% inflation means that over the last year, something which once cost a pound will now cost £1.10. This means you can buy fewer things unless your pay also increases. And pay is not increasing as fast as inflation. Thank you. That was quite quick, much quicker than other episodes. Um, <laughs> so we know that at most
0: years, the independent, and I'm doing air quotations for the word independent, by the way, people can't see that. It's an audio podcast, but I'm doing air quotations for the word independent. The independent pay review body and the government and so on, we don't reach an agreement often until it's too late for this academic year. And then it's something that has to schools have to look at in their budgets come September once they're back. Usually it's only sort of in implemented from October so it gets backdated, sometimes it's November and then backdated. At the moment are we likely to be in a position where schools can budget for this before they break up for the summer holidays?
1: That is always our hope, it's always our intention for us and the other unions to submit our evidence in good time. But of course we're only a part of the evidence gathering process. In addition to the unions, the Local Government Association and the Department for Education also supply evidence to the Independent School Teachers Review Body. That evidence is then put together, analysed, studied. A report is produced by the Independent Pay Review Body with recommendations made to government. According to the information that we've had, the independent pay review body are still anticipating producing their report by May, which should allow time for it to be considered by government and for the recommendations to be laid before Parliament before they go off on their summer holiday. The problem is that that is probably still likely to be too late for it to be implemented in schools by the end of September, in time for the pay run at the end of September. It's also far, far, far too late for it to be considered within this year's budget plans which of course schools head teachers colleges they will be planning uh, their budgets or next year they will be planning those already now
0: so to be super super clear what we're talking about is teacher pay rises, a small pay rise, but a teacher pay rises from September 2023 that are unlikely, probably, to be in the September pay packet and more likely to be in October or
1: November and then backdated. And at the moment,
0: just
1: 3%. At the moment, the DfE are recommending 3%, which is wholly unacceptable and uh, is something that will need to be negotiated. Okay, let's move on then to exams. Now, obviously,
0: since the start of the pandemic in 2020, exams have been the source of considerable debate on how they should go ahead during COVID and then post-COVID. Where are we at this year,
1: Martin? Are exams sort of quote, back to normal. In England, exams are now considered to be back to normal. So SATS tests will begin on Tuesday the 8th of May, following the extra bank holiday for the King's coronation, and teachers and support staff should already be aware of pupils who will need extra help, large print, uh, amanuensis, readers, etc., etc., and putting those requests in to the STA. GCSE and A-level exams are due to formally begin week commencing the 15th of May. Although, as many listeners will be aware, there are some exams before this date, for example, art practicals uh, and some of the language's speaking exams. It's important to note that the DfE announced that it would return to pre-pandemic grading for 2023 exams. But we put out a response to say that we think this is too soon and that candidates continue to be significantly impacted by the effects of COVID, both historic and ongoing. And we would like to see a moderate approach taken, such as the approach taken in Wales, where the grades will again be stepped down from their historic high. But in the absence of this, it is worth pointing out that grade distribution will follow the bell curve as it normally does, which will mean uh, that if students overall perform as expected, the same number of students will receive the higher grades and the lower grades with the majority somewhere in the middle. Uh, What about pre-release materials? So pre-release materials are now available on the exam board websites. If teachers or support staff are downloading any materials, they need to make sure they follow the rules for downloading and safe storage. And if in doubt, they should check with their exams officer. Some materials are designed for sharing with pupils, but not all of them. Again, make sure you check the instructions carefully. The DfE has confirmed that candidates will not be specifically provided with advance information on the focus of this year's summer exams. However, they will be provided with support in GCSE Maths, Physics and combined science with formulae and equation sheets. So they won't be required to memorize formula, etc., for these subjects. And results days will be in August, just like they traditionally are.
0: So just on the, the the maths and physics formulas, is that something that's likely to continue indefinitely or is that just another agreement for this year?
1: At the moment this is just an agreement for this year. We'll have to wait and see what happens next year. Okay. And that probably brings
0: exams to a close. Right, and onto your working life then. And this month we want to talk about health and safety in school buildings, so literally your life, potentially. Uh, Now, Martin, specifically, there's been a lot of talk in the media, quite rightly, about the state of school buildings following the Department for Education's
1: own report on the safety of them. What can you tell us uh, about that issue? Yeah we mentioned briefly last month about the news that the condition of school buildings across England has been escalated from critical likely to critical very likely and that the direction of travel for this risk is assessed by the DfE as worsening. I don't want people to start panicking because that information is potentially terrifying but it needs a little bit of unpacking. In the last five years only two schools have experienced any form of collapse Um, One in Kent and one in Plymouth, and this happened when both schools were unoccupied, although we are aware that a further 39 schools have temporarily closed whilst investigations have been undertaken and remedial works completed. For us, what this does is highlight the need for a properly funded maintenance programme in our schools and for the DfE to properly risk assess the school estates across the country. But this is a big job. There are some 22,000 school buildings that the DfE has management oversight for within England and at the moment it's just not clear exactly which schools contain what materials and so finding the buildings most at risk and putting them right is a slow and meticulous process. What we have done is written to the government about this. Uh, We wanted to know where the schools most at risk were and what the DfE was doing about it. The DfE have yet to respond, but we have met with officials and outlined our concerns to raise the urgency of this situation. Well, yeah, I mean, I appreciate what you're saying, Martin, but two schools
0: is two schools too many, isn't it? And the fact that they were unoccupied, I mean, I don't know when, when it happened or if it was a result of the fact that no, no one was in them and maintained them properly at that time, but possibly more luck than, than judgment. So it's definitely something that people need to be aware of, isn't it, at the moment?
1: Definitely something that people need to be aware of, particularly because we are aware that the amount of money spent on school maintenance has plummeted over the past decade. With the age of the school buildings in England and the fact that many of our school buildings are coming to the end of their build life, the the design life for some of these buildings, it's something which is likely to only increase over time. Now, what you're talking about, I think,
0: in terms of or what we're talking about in terms of the uh, DFE's study is reinforced autoclaved aerated concrete or RAAC. Is
1: there anything else for people to be concerned about? Is it maintenance just in general? Maintenance in general has been cut over the past 10 years, but you're correct that the particular issue at the moment is all around this particular type of concrete. This was a post-World War II invention. Buildings were put up very quickly using a modular construction technique, and they were often... uh, This concrete was very light Um, but it was never designed to last for more than sort of 30 or 40 years and we are now almost a hundred years from the beginning of World War II which gives you an idea of how far past their imagined life some of these products are. We also know that a number of post-World War II buildings were insulated with asbestos and this is an ongoing concern with us and we continue to make representations to the DfE promoting safe removal of asbestos wherever possible. Now, I think we touched on this.
0: What should someone do or what should a member do uh, if um, they have concerns over the structural integrity or the or just in general for health and safety? I mean, do they have the right to ask their head teacher or their chair of governors what kind of material has been used in the school, you know, to find out if it is RAAC?
1: Yes, they absolutely do. Members and the schools that they work in need to be proactive about this. We would expect every school to have a condition survey every year and for that information to be gathered. Those surveys tend to be visual surveys, but they are a good indication of whether there are any deeper structural faults. Unfortunately, with RAAC, these are materials which are usually contained within the school building, either in a floor or a ceiling, and so they're things that are very, very difficult to see without doing an invasive structural survey. But some schools need to consider having these structural surveys in order to check the makeup of their building. The DFE currently has a survey open which schools need to fill in. So members need to check that their health and safety officers, these sometimes the site staff or admin staff, make sure that they have completed and submitting this. Um, uh, make sure that they have completed and submitted those uh, condition surveys. And obviously, if members have any concerns about the safety of their site, they should tell the site manager in writing as soon as possible.
0: Now, this is a perfect opportunity, I think, for me to mention the fact that we are always on the lookout for health and safety representatives. It's a bit like being a workplace rep, but you're a rep uh, concerned largely with the health and safety of your workplace. Uh, We do offer training for that. You know, as a rep, you'll be be fully trained as a health and safety rep. You know, that's all covered. So if you're interested in that, please do get in touch with your uh, local officer in your area. Now, just as a final point on this, Martin, uh, during the pandemic, there was a lot of talk about Section 44 and about Section 100 from the Employment Rights Act. Now, that often came from other trade unions. It was something that trade unions were using as a way of ensuring the health and safety of, of members and of staff during the pandemic. But it's probably relevant here as well. What do those two sections mean? I mean, ultimately, these come down to if there's absolutely nothing else you can do you don't have to be at work essentially under those sections. Can you tell us a bit more?
1: Section 44 and section 100 protect workers if there is no other alternative but to withdraw their labour. They protect members from being dismissed should that action be taken, but it's important to point out that this must be a very, very, very last thing to do. You can't just suddenly choose to withdraw your labour. You must have raised concerns in writing. You must have given the workplace an opportunity to put those things right, to repair the buildings to a reasonable standard before you do that. Employees cannot just remove themselves from the workplace due to fears. The provisions of section 44 and section 100 don't provide employees with a right to withdraw from and refuse to return to a workplace that is unsafe just because they say so. So the difficulty with these provisions is that the employee must show that they have reasonable belief that there is a threat and that it is serious and imminent. So exercise caution because there is no one size fits all solution here. So whilst there is some protection under Section 44 and Section 100, please do get in touch if you have concerns and you think you may need to resort to this piece of legislation.
0: Yeah, you absolutely must not start quoting section 44 and section 100 as a reason for not being in work until you've spoken to us. Uh, I know it's a bit of a downer. We'll move on. Okay, my favourite bit of the podcast, Martin, that I've actually started to think in my head as uh, how can I catch out Martin this month? Um, But it's Mythbusters. So, this um, month, I wanted to touch on holiday essentially. It's something you've already kind of a little bit alluded to earlier on in the podcast when you mentioned the king's coronation. So, maybe that's something we can come back to. But here is my myth buster. Okay. If I don't ordinarily work Mondays, okay, let's say I work 0.8, so I work four days a week. If I don't ordinarily work Mondays, then I don't get a bank holiday off, right? So, what I'm talking about is if i have a colleague who works the exact same amount of time as me they also work four days a week but their day off is a friday on a week where there is a bank holiday monday they've also got the monday off but if i don't work a monday then i've not got it off because i already don't work so is there anything people can do if they don't work mondays to get that bank holiday back or that time back somehow
1: bear with me because on the surface this should be something which is really straightforward But I think it will help us to explain a few of the things before we actually come up with a solution here. So annual leave in the UK is made up of two key components, 20 statutory days and eight bank holidays. Now, we've mentioned a little bit about holidays in the past. So in the UK, under both EU and domestic law, full time workers are entitled to 5.6 weeks of annual leave each year made up, as I've said, of 20 days of statutory annual leave and eight days of bank holidays, plus any other contractual leave that you might be entitled to in that order. So first of all, 20 days of annual leave, eight days of bank holidays, and then any other contractual leave. In law, there is no statutory right for anybody to have bank holidays off work any right to time off depends entirely on your contract some workplaces close on bank holidays and if this is the case for you then it's likely that you will be expected to take those as paid leave days in which case the number of days that you have got available to you in that 5.6 weeks of annual leave will be reduced by one day every bank holiday that you take off Some workplaces are open on bank holidays and if this is the case for you then you may be able to choose to take that day off as a day of annual leave or you may choose to work it in which case you may be entitled to take that day at another point. Some workplaces include those eight bank holidays within the 5.6 weeks of annual leave, Some workplaces will say that you are entitled to 5.6 weeks of annual leave plus bank holidays, in which case you get an additional eight days of bank holidays. So really in determining what your holiday entitlement is it comes back to one of our old sayings which is check your contract, check your contract, check your contract.
0: So I understand what you're saying you know if you work in retail, uh, bank holiday Monday, uh, you work in uh, a large supermarket, Tesco's or something and uh, Tesco's is open on a bank holiday Monday and you work it you may get that day back another time right but schools close on a bank holiday Monday right schools aren't open bank holiday Mondays if they're not open so it's closed but you also already don't work a Monday. Do you get that day back at another time?
1: Again, a little bit more background. Recently, in July 2022, the Supreme Court determined that if you work part year, as many members who work in schools will do because they work term time only, or if anybody works in a regular working pattern, your holiday entitlement should not normally be less than the full statutory entitlement of 5.6 weeks. So if you are someone working in a school or a college or a nursery and you are employed on a term time only contract, even though you don't work the full 52 weeks for the purposes of employment, you are still entitled to 5.6 weeks of annual leave. If you work part time, so you work fewer than 37 hours every week, your holiday entitlement will probably be adjusted. For example, if you work three days each week, Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday, that is 0.6 or 60% of the full-time week and your holiday entitlement will also be 60% of that full statutory amount. If your workplace shuts on bank holidays and you normally work on a bank holiday, you would be considered to be taking that day as paid Holiday. Now, where this gets people upset is where they see colleagues benefiting from bank holiday days off. But it's important to point out that everybody is entitled to the same amount of leave, 5.6 weeks. But someone who works on a Monday might not be freely able to take as much of that time off as someone else because they will have to use some of their holiday entitlement to cover the Mondays. For example, you work one day a week, Monday. You're entitled to 5.6 days annual leave each year because that's the correct proportion as a part-time worker. There are four bank holidays that fall on a Monday each year. There are additional ones this year, but normally there are four bank holidays that fall on a Monday each year and your work is closed on these days. This means that you have to use four days of your annual leave on bank holidays. Leaving you with just 1.6 days of annual leave to take at a time of your choice. If you worked on Tuesdays, there would be no bank holidays on the days you work. Therefore, you would be free to take all 5.6 days annual leave at your choosing. To come back to your point about the fact that schools choose to close, but that members have to take their holidays during holidays rather than the being free to take them at any other time. This works in exactly the same way you are paid for your 5.6 weeks of holiday it's just that someone benefits from it during term time because it's a bank holiday rather than benefiting from it elsewhere okay so one
0: last scenario for you martin teachers are paid to work 1265 hours over 195 days a year if you work part-time, your pay is prorated based on the amount, of the amount of days that you do, right? So you'll get 80% of your pay if you work four days a week, you get 60% pay if you work three days a week, and so on. If there's two of you in a school who both work three days a week, but one of you works Mondays and one of you doesn't, you're still going to end up getting paid the same throughout the whole year, but one of you's getting an extra four days off. Correct. So what happens then? Is that just... It's just one of those things that's unfair and there's not a lot we can do about it. Or should people who don't work Mondays
1: get an extra four days pay? So this is one of those things that is legally really, really difficult to explain because it is legally fair, even though inherently it feels hugely unfair. We have to be aware of what's called a less favourable treatment for part time workers. So it's against the law to treat part-time workers less favourably than their full-time co-workers. And because most bank holidays fall on a Monday or a Friday, part-time employees who don't work on those days could be entitled to proportionally fewer days off. So if that is the case with our support staff or with our teachers, as we've mentioned, we need to make sure that we inform the school office about these things, because you are entitled to the equivalent number of days off, including bank holidays, in proportion to the hours that you work, the same as your full-time colleagues and To avoid a complaint of less favorable treatment may provide part-time employees with a specific prorated bank holiday entitlement to ensure that the whole thing is worked out fairly. That's why at the very beginning of the answer, you'll remember, I explained that holiday is calculated in a specific order, 20 days of annual leave, eight days of bank holiday, plus any contractual leave after that. By working it out this way, that can be a fairer way and can help to ensure that part-time workers are not treated less favourably than their full-time colleagues. And finally,
0: now I've worked quite hard to catch you out and I've I've not been able to, but finally, um, is there a difference between treating one person less favourably than another and treating one person
1: more favourably than another? There are laws which cover less favourable treatment for part-time workers. It is illegal to treat a part-time worker less favourably than a full-time worker. If the rules that are put in place to correct that less favourable treatment actually end up benefiting the part-time workers, often negligibly so, but if they benefit the part-time workers, that is acceptable because there are no laws that prevent better treatment only laws which prevent less favourable treatment.
0: You've worked really hard there, and I appreciate that. So I think it's time we brought that to an end and said that is another myth busted. Um. And so it's the end of another podcast, as always. Please do remember, if you enjoy the podcast, to share it with anyone else you think may be interested, whether they are a colleague, a friend, or a family member. Please do pass it on and encourage other people to listen. And if you've not done so already, please do subscribe. It's really genuinely good for us uh, to get the numbers up there. And it means that you get that episode straight to your chosen device and also like it and leave us a message. Because, again, that's really good to help us pass the pod. And the more people who are listening to it, the better. Martin, if people do want to get in touch with us, how should they do so?
1: They can get in touch with us by emailing you and I directly on education policy at community-tu.org. Or they can follow us on social media for news, shared content on resources. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and on Instagram. So leave us a message and get in touch.
0: And if you do need any advice, then please do get in touch with your local regional officer, who will be happy to give you some advice and to support you if necessary. And that's it for another month. We'll see you again next month.